0: Well, brethren, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, if you're using the chair Bible, you can find it on page 917. And this morning we are considering the conclusion of Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And before we read the Word of the Lord together, let's ask our God to enlighten us with His truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You in our need as Your people to hear Your Word. Lord, we know that this is the very Word of truth. It is the Word of life and not a vain Word. Lord, we pray that we would recognize that we live by it. So take this bread of heaven, as it were, and feed us with it, that we would be nourished and we would grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Holy Word? Again, we're in Acts chapter 8 and we're picking up in verse 26 to the end of the chapter. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Bezotos, and as he passed through he preached the gospel to all the towns, until he came to Caesarea. Well thus far, God's holy word, and brother may he bless it to you all of our hearts. Please be seated. Back in Luke chapter 19, our Savior had a well-known meeting with a wee little man, Zacchaeus. And upon that meeting, you remember, Jesus sought out this chief tax collector and changed his heart. And then Jesus declared one purpose of His incarnation. He said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now that Scripture shows us that salvation is not a thing we initiate. Salvation comes to us because the Lord pursues us. He seeks us to save us. He unveils the truth to us that we might rest in Jesus. Well, the Son of Man, our King and Savior, now in Acts chapter 8, is exalted in heaven, but he's still seeking and saving the lost. He's still sending forth His Spirit to subdue hearts, and Jesus is giving men what they need that they might know who He is and what He has done. Now we talk quite a bit in our church and in the Reformed and Presbyterian context about the ordinary means of grace. Some of you might not know what that is. What are the ordinary means of grace? Well, these are the means, the ordinances, that Jesus has instituted the reading and preaching of His Word, the sacraments and prayer, which are used by the Spirit to awaken us to life and to nourish our faith. And as we consider the means the Lord uses to make us know Him, we see in our text that Jesus seeks us by sending us those means. Now surely King Jesus could have supernaturally revealed Himself to the Ethiopian eunuch as he will do in the next chapter with Saul on the Damascus Road. However, here, while there are surely supernatural things happening in the chapter, what the Lord gives this Ethiopian eunuch is a preacher. The chief shepherd sends the shepherd of souls to explain the word. It's similar to what we're going to see in Acts chapter 10, when King Jesus will send Peter to preach to Cornelius the Gentile. This reminds us of what Paul says in Romans 10. How will they call on the Lord in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Well, in our text, there's a man with beautiful feet carrying the gospel of good news who's been sent to carry the knowledge of Christ to a far-off soul. And the whole passage is showing us this is a clearly divinely directed encounter. Now, before we even get to the four points, I want to mention, aren't you already finding, welling up in your soul, an amazement at the kindness of God? That He would send someone to rescue this man? You know, John Newton was right when he wrote Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm what? He didn't find himself. He was found. He was found because the Lord pursued him. Well, let's see four things. First, promises fulfilled in verses 26-28. to Now we start here with a supernatural bit. Verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now here we see that Philip (coughs) didn't decide to leave Samaria. Remember, he was preaching in Samaria. That's where he's been, proclaiming the Word of God. And now, I think I'll go on a sightseeing trip. No, that's not how this happens. Indeed, who would want even to go to the desert where he ends up? That's where Philip and the Ethiopian meet in verse 26. This is a desert place. You have to think, with yourself, uh, think among yourself with Philip for a second. What are you doing, Lord? Where are you taking me? who am I going to meet here? And that's not even to mention the very successful ministry Philip was having in the city of Samaria. But Philip goes to this place. Why? Because he's directed by an angel of the Lord. Noah built an ark because God told him to. Abraham took his son to sacrifice him because God told him to. Joseph takes his wife, Mary, and the baby and goes to Egypt because God tells him to. God may tell you to do strange things sometimes in the Scriptures. But really the principle here is are you ready to obey Him with whatever He requires? Do you trust Him? That's what Philip does. And this is also a quick reminder to us as Philip is sent that while men are used of Christ to advance the mission, to advance the Gospel, men, that is mere men, are not driving the mission. King Jesus is directing Philip to go. And much like Jesus once came to the exact place where Zacchaeus happened to be up in a tree and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. You've sang this song a lot of you, most of your life. For I must, it is of divine necessity is the power of that word. "I, I, the seeking Savior, must stay at your house today. Well, in the same way, the Lord Jesus through His servants, hear the angel, is instructing Philip where to go to claim a soul for Christ. And yet, as Jesus seeks this particular soul, here, brethren, we have another episode in the advance or the expansion of the gospel. Philip did as he was told. We read verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, several things should strike us about the scene. First, there's where the man is from. He's an Ethiopian. This is the realm where Queen Candace, and by the way, that's a dynastic name and not a personal name, like Pharaoh. Everybody was called Pharaoh. The leaders here were called Candace. That seems weird to us, but it's simply how it was. This is not modern-day Ethiopia. It's actually the region right below Egypt along the Nile, which today we call Sudan. In the ancient world, this was Nubia or Ethiopia, but the Old Testament refers to it as Cush. Kush. Now the Cushite connection is very important, as I'll show you in a minute. But from the perspective of Philip, a Jew, in the Roman Empire, Ethiopia, or Cush, is truly at the end of the earth. It lies actually outside the realm of the Roman Empire. This is a far-off region, if there ever was one, and you should already have ringing in your head, Acts 1.8, Samaria to where? The ends of the earth. Well, this man has, interestingly, traveled to Jerusalem a thousand miles to worship. And of course, that brings up a second thing. Because he's a eunuch, that is a a castrated male, typical feature actually in the ancient world and among the royal court, he couldn't truly be part of the people of Israel. He he couldn't be a Gentile convert, a a proselyte. Eunuchs were forbidden from entering the assembly of God's people, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Perhaps as he came to Jerusalem as a Gentile with yearnings for the God of Israel, He might have gone into the court of the Gentiles there at the temple, but he couldn't offer sacrifices. Imagine this man desiring to go all that way, a journey which would have taken at least a month with all the expense, all the trouble, and when you get there, you can't even participate in worship. It would be like you sitting outside and you don't have the speaker to hear the sermon. Now, he would already know that, but he goes anyway. And why does he do that? Because he's devoted to God. He's craving the truth. And in his devotion to the Lord, we see that evidenced by the fact that he no doubt at great expense has purchased a copy of the Scriptures. Recognize, brethren, that's not something that everybody has. It's very expensive at this time in the world to make a copy of the Scriptures. But to have one yourself, that would be really expensive. This is rare air but he's he's got it and he's reading it, seeking to know God. And do you see here how the Gospel is expanding? Now we haven't reached the point in Acts yet where the Gospel goes in earnest to the Gentiles. That will happen in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. But here is this man on the fringes of Judaism, a little less connected even than the Samaritans, a Gentile with interest in being a proselyte, but unable to be, because he's a eunuch, to him. The gospel is about to come. Now, as Philip meets this wealthy court official from Africa on the plains of Gaza, ancient Philistine country, while we're about to read a crucial section of Isaiah, the promises of God from Isaiah are actually already ringing in the background. In Isaiah chapter 11, we hear of a shoot from Jesse's stump. You remember that? A shoot from Jesse's stump, the coming Davidic king upon whom the Spirit of God will rest. And we're told, Isaiah says, that that Savior will stand as a signal for all the people. By the way, the word signal, like a banner, is the same word in Numbers 21 where Moses lifted up the bronze serpent as a signal. If you've been snake-bitten in your sin to look and live. And then Jesus says, John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Isaiah 11 is prophesying these things, talking about Jesus' coming death and resurrection to save the nations. And one of those nations that Isaiah 11, verse 11 says that the Lord will extend His hand to to recover a remnant is Cush. You guessed it. Isaiah 18 goes on to speak of the Cushites. One day bringing tribute that is coming to worship the Lord of hosts. You see, the promises made in Isaiah already anticipate Cushites, like this man, being saved. But of course, this man's Gentile status isn't his only obstacle. He's a eunuch. He's a man separated from worship. But then there's Isaiah 56 that declares a coming day when Messiah and His salvation comes and the thirsty are called to come to the waters and drink then the lord said isaiah 56 verse 4 thus says the lord to the eunuchs who keep my sabbaths who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant i will give them my house and will and and walls uh, or i will have a monument with walls within my courts and i will give them a name better than the sons and daughters i will give them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. What's this saying to us? Saying the Lord is promising to permit in the New Covenant eunuchs to come near, eunuchs to know Him, eunuchs to be called the sons and daughters of God. Do you see what's happening in this passage? The promises of God are coming to pass. Brethren, God is being faithful to words that He spoke over 700 years prior. And the fulfillment we're seeing is strikingly specific. We haven't even got to the man's conversion. But we've already, we already see that King Jesus has sent Philip to meet this eunuch to keep his old promises. For not one word of all of God's good words will fail. What an encouragement that should be to us. The Gospel is beginning to go just as Jesus said to the ends of the earth. And while we're not Cushites, and while, thankfully, we're not eunuchs, here we are at the ends of the earth from a first century perspective. And the gospel is spread to us. And why has it done that? Because our God is a promise-keeping God. Long ago, He declared to Abraham, in your seed, Abraham, the coming Savior, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here we are. And what is that blessing, dear friends? It's being made a part of the household of God. It's being sought by Christ and cleansed by His blood. It's being called a son or a daughter of God, given unbreakable intimacy with the Lord through His seeking and saving grace. It should cause us to rejoice in the God who seeks and saves sinners. But secondly, see with me, personal help, not just promises fulfilled, but personal help. The Ethiopian eunuch on his long journey home to Africa has stopped for a break. He's reading the prophet Isaiah, but he doesn't understand it. Maybe you can relate. What does he do then? Well, the Lord intervenes. He sends a personal helper, a teacher, to explain the Scriptures to this man. Verse 29, look at it. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot That would be a thing you might not want to do because you don't know who this guy is or how powerful he is. Decorum would say, stay away. But he's told by the Spirit and he does it. And the Spirit, so Philip ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. By the way, it was customary when you read the Bible to read it out loud. He was reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He doesn't. He needs help. He needs an instructor. And he's humble enough, though he's... Wealthy in a royal court to welcome Philip to sit with him in the chariot. And then we're told exactly the passage that was being read. It's Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Now, Isaiah 53 is the fourth servant song. It is the most famous prophecy of the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This passage is quoted at least seven times in the New Testament. John the baptizer used this text to shape his declaration, Behold, the Lamb of God. And you see that connection in these verses. There was one like a sheep led to the slaughter like a silent lamb before its shearer. And in his humiliation, his life was taken away. The prophecy is indicating the Savior would be humiliated. He would be deprived of justice and why would He die? Well, Luke doesn't quote the relevant section of Isaiah 53, but just prior to what we get in the quotation is Isaiah 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The eunuch asks the natural question in verse 34. About whom is the prophet speaking? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip brings the key to unlock the purposes of God in the Old Testament. Jesus, His person and His work. And we read verse 35, in beginning with this Scripture, He told Him the good news about Jesus. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who suffers for the sins of His people. Jesus is the complete or full sacrifice. Jesus is the spotless One who makes Himself a guilt offering. But while Jesus has been cut off from the land of the living, Isaiah 53 goes on to teach that Jesus will see His offspring. The Father will prolong His days. That's resurrection language. The Father will accept His sacrifice in the place of sinners and give Him life beyond the grave. Jesus will bear our iniquity and Jesus will make everyone who believes in Him to be accounted as righteous before God. You see, beloved, what we need is a perfect, Sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. And even if we were to come like this eunuch and we could bring innumerable bulls and goats, they can't take away sin. We need a sacrifice who will truly represent us. A man. And that's what Jesus is. The God-man. He can be our substitute because He's one of us. But as one of us, He's uniquely flawless, unblemished. He has a perfect record To put in the place of your corruption is the great exchange. Jesus gets all your bad record. You who believe in Him get His perfect record. And He's willing to pour out His soul to death to be numbered with the transgressors to make atonement for our sins. What an incredible, mind-numbing thing that God was pleased to spare not His own Son, but to give Him for the ungodly. And what an unthinkable thing that Jesus Himself would take our sins upon His shoulders and do whatever is necessary that we could be credited with righteousness before the Father. Now one wonders, after starting with Isaiah 53, what other texts Philip used to explain the Gospel. Because beginning with this Scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Wouldn't you have loved to be there in the chariot and to hear what all was said? Don't you wish that Luke would have recorded the details? Well, why doesn't he do that? Probably because we've had a record of preaching in the kind of text that's already been mentioned. We've already heard in Acts of preaching using Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is the he's the one prophet like Moses, but the greater prophet to come. Or Psalm 16. Someone in David's line is going to live beyond the grave. That's Jesus or Psalm 110. Yahweh the Lord, the covenant father, said to my Lord Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We've heard of things from Psalm 2, the king who reigns and kissed the sun, lest you perish in the way, or Daniel 7, the son of man, to whom a kingdom and all nations and peoples are given. All of these texts are telling us the person and work of Jesus Christ. What we're seeing, brethren, is if we don't read our Old Testament with our Jesus' eyeglasses on, we don't get it. We don't get it. We have to bring Christ to bear on the message that God has been giving from the very beginning. And as we read of Philip sharing and explaining the good news of Jesus to the Ethiopian, we are again reminded of ordinary means. The Spirit of God is the one who gives understanding as we read the Scripture. But how does the Spirit ordinarily give us understanding? The Spirit uses Spirit-filled teachers. He fills men with the knowledge of Christ and then He has them share that knowledge because faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. Now we all here this morning may not be called to the office of evangelists like Philip was, but the scene begs a question is our mind filled with Scripture? With Jesus as the fulfillment of God's saving plan so that we could share the good news with other people? Do we have the Word of God dwelling richly within us so that we can explain it? So that we could tell God's great purpose of redeeming through the blood of Christ? You may never have such an extraordinary opportunity where someone just happens to be reading Isaiah 53. But are we ready? Do we have a reason for the hope within us? Is, is Christ's Word there so that as the Lord provides opportunities, as we have providential encounters, we can speak for Christ? Philip here isn't just a motto of preaching as he is in Samaria. He's a motto of personal evangelism. Do you have a word to share? If you don't know how to explain the Gospel, then it's time to go to Sunday school. You need to do some work. You need to make sure you can be clear about this. It doesn't mean you have to be the most eloquent person in the world, but can you articulate what it is the Lord has done in His purposes? How He saves sinners? Brother, that is a thing that we must be able to do. Thirdly, see, a profession of faith. Luke doesn't record it here, but we would do well to believe that Philip as with all the other examples of proclaiming Christ in the book of Acts, concluded his explanation of the good news by calling for a response. And what is the response we've heard in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 5, Acts 8? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's been the repeated pattern. And clearly, as the Ethiopian eunuch heard all of this about Jesus, he believed the gospel. Indeed, his heart longed for this glorious attachment to the Savior of his soul who sought him as an outcast. For as his entourage gets going again on the road south, we read, verse 36, that they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, or better, behold, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, the question tells us that not only did Philip call this man to repent and believe, and he clearly has, but Philip probably spoke as Peter had at Pentecost. Acts 2.38 Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christian baptism, while not essential to salvation, The thief on the cross didn't come down to get baptized first before Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Christian baptism is nevertheless a vital and obedient response to Christ. What did Jesus say when He commissioned the apostles with the mission of the church? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus has ordered His people to receive baptism. In baptism, recognizing the grace of God in Christ, how the Lord sought me and bought me with His precious blood, in baptism, there is a pledge of our allegiance to the Lord. How we're set apart for the Lord. Or as our larger catechism puts it, baptism is a sign of our admittance or we would say entrance into the visible church. Baptism is a means to evidence. And I love this language of our larger catechism. Baptism is a means to evidence. Listen to this language. Our open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. To be holy and only the Lord's. That's covenantal language. It's marriage language, isn't it? Who's our husband? Jesus who came from heaven to seek His Holy Bride. We're holy and only Christ. Our life aims to be caught up entirely with Jesus, living unto Him as Lord. And the fact that this Ethiopian eunuch wanted to be baptized right now without hesitation indicates the fervency of his faith. Why would he delay his professed engagement to Jesus? He wants to do it now. And a little water is the only obstacle. For knowing who Jesus is, the servant of the Lord who suffered in the place of this eunuch, who gifts Him righteousness, it's a strong conviction to commit to Jesus. It's a reminder that there could be those among God's people who are, as Elijah puts it, are limping between two opinions. you want to serve Christ or you want to serve the world? There's a call. Serve Christ. Give yourself to Him wholly. What a scene this is. How instructive is it in showing us the intensity of a commitment that we ought to have to the Lord Jesus? Further, understanding what baptism is an engagement to be the Lord's. Brethren, is that the way we think? That we live moment by moment believing I have been bought with a a price. I belong to Jesus. My loyalties are all to Him. Every time we see a baptism, we should be brought back to this foundational, covenantal commitment. I am my beloved's and He is mine. And we want never to forget the One to whom we belong. Is that how we live? Every day lived in view of our attachment to Jesus. That honors the Lord. Martin Luther was famous for saying, I'm a a baptized man. I'm a man who belongs to Christ. That's a perspective we ought to cultivate. Now, those of you who are paying really close attention may have noticed that the ESV, along with a bunch of other uh, major translations, skips verse 37. In some translations, it's included in brackets. And the New King James Version reads, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may, that is you may be baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The ESV and other translations do not include this verse for a very simple reason. It is missing from virtually all the early manuscripts. It's missing from virtually all the early manuscripts. Surely the eunuch made some profession of faith like this, that he declared he believed in Jesus. We're not given the whole context of the conversation. He wouldn't be admitted to Christian baptism as someone outside the covenant without confessing his faith in Christ. But this verse is not original to Luke. Scribes probably added, added it to explain the situation. You may have tons of questions about that. You can talk to him about it later. But with his profession now, okay, he's professed Christ in seeing water. We read, verse 38, that the eunuch commanded the chariot to stop. It's a little reminder, brethren, that what happens here isn't totally private. It's not just Philip and the eunuch. The eunuch is a high ranking official in Queen Candace's court. He has a retinue, no doubt a host of servants who are attending to him along this journey. He tells his chariot driver or drivers to stop. James, stop. You're supposed to laugh at that. Verse 38 And they, we read, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, permit me for a moment to engage in a little polemics. All right, just stick with me. This is important, and I'm a Presbyterian, so I, I feel compelled to speak on this issue. Some say, because of the going down into the water language in verse 38, and the coming up out of the water language in verse 39, that the baptism performed here was by immersion. That argument cannot be sustained for three reasons. Number one, this is a desert region, as we've already been told. And the report, verse 36, that they came to some water and the the behold, there's some water, by no means indicates that there's actually a lake or a river. This is a barren wasteland. This is likely what the ancients called a, a wadi, a place where water would flow in small quantities after a rain. And sometimes the rainwater could last a while. So, number one, this is not a lake where you could go. Two, the language went down into the water cannot by itself prove immersion. This same language, same lingo entirely in the Greek is used in the Greek Old Testament in Judges 7 of Gideon's men simply going to the water's edge. Or you remember some of them are lapping the water like a dog in another you know, dignified way, scooping it up into their mouth. So, the language doesn't by itself mean immersion. And then third, and most conclusively, the argument for immersion, it actually proves too much. The text emphasizes that both men went down into the water. Do you see that in verse 38? They both went down into the water, and then it's emphasized again, literally, both, that word said again, Philip and the eunuch, and then verse 39, they came up out of the water. So, this means, are you tracking with me? If the eunuch was immersed as he was baptized, it must also mean Philip had to immerse himself as he did the baptism. Indeed, it would then demand that the person performing baptism by immersion has to immerse himself. No one thinks that. This can't be sustained. It's best to think, much as two ancient travelers would walk to a little stream and maybe rinse their hands or rinse their feet, maybe splash some water on their face, in like manner, Philip took water and either sprinkled or poured it on the eunuch. One more thing to mention here in this very argumentative perspective is to remember that Philip performs the baptism, yes, but he's no longer a deacon. You remember he was originally ordained of the the seven deacons back in Acts 6? But in Acts 8, he's been preaching regularly and now he administers baptism, a sacramental rite tied to the office of teaching. Why is he doing these things? Because Philip is, as we'll hear later about him, Philip the evangelist. He has been called, ordained to the office of evangelist and one similarly to the apostles, who's traveling around to various areas and he's preaching and establishing churches. So, this passage is not giving anyone latitude if you share the Gospel with someone and they profess faith, you get to go baptize them. No. Philip is a lawfully ordained minister of the Gospel of Jesus Christ who therefore is uniquely charged to administer Christian baptism. That's a few tricky issues. Hope you got it. You can ask me more questions. Finally, see with me. Preaching spreads. Right after Philip and the eunuch come up out of the water, we read verse 39 The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. <clears throat> One of my children asked me last night Is this like a beam me up, Scotty thing? Uh maybe. It's really unclear whether this is a supernatural removal. I would probably lean that direction, or some kind of forceful impression on Philip by the Spirit. So he leaves right then. Either way, what is clear is like the start of the story. The Spirit of Christ is directing the spread of the gospel. Philip's movements are not about his desires. He may well have wanted to travel with the Ethiopian eunuch and talk to him. He may have wanted to see a part of the world he had never seen before. But the Spirit will determine where the man goes with the preaching of the Gospel. And it leaves us to recognize again that this whole encounter was divinely appointed. The Spirit brought Philip to this spot at this time to preach to this man while he was reading Isaiah 53 to demonstrate to us all that God is seeking and saving His people. Now I'm sure there was a twinge of sadness in the Ethiopian eunuch to no longer be with Philip who has taught him, and get the impression they don't see each other again. But how does the eunuch leave? End of verse 39, he went on his way, what? Rejoicing. What is the evident fruit of saving faith? It is joy. Joy. Acts has shown us this in space. The apostles are whipped for Christ. What do they do? They rejoice, Acts chapter 5. Here the eunuch is rejoicing even though Philip is taken away. Acts 16, Paul and Silas will be beaten with rods, put in stocks in a prison. And what are they doing? Singing hymns of praise to God. What kind of joy is this? This is a joy that the Spirit produces when a person loves Christ. Because, brethren, while this world brings persecution and it brings painful partings, Christ Himself remains with us. He is our joy. And surely, gospel joy of Jesus goes home with this eunuch to Africa. Now, we're not told here anything about what happened when he got home, but according to the church fathers, and I'll close with this big thought, according to the church fathers, The eunuch took the gospel home with him and he declared Jesus to others. Now, I briefly mention this because it seems, though it's ignored, um, this passage is ignored, it, it seems there are people in our world today who are especially critical of Christianity, claiming that it is a product of Western imperialism. Christianity is not Western, this is the Middle East. And starting right here, there is a rich heritage of African Christianity. Now, Islam will try to destroy Christianity in Africa starting in the seventh century. But, brethren, we owe much of our confessional heritage, our theological declarations like the Nicene Creed, the language of the Trinity, person and nature, the declaration of the priority of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We owe that to Africans, Tertullian, Athanasius, Augustine, Clement of Alexandria, and Cyprian. They were all Africans. Athanasius was mocked for being a a black dwarf. That's an interesting insult. He must have been a short guy. But this is showing us the vast expansion of the Gospel. Luke is highly selective. He doesn't take you into Cush and show you what happened there. He's focused on the Roman Empire. But Luke would then have a see. Look at what the Lord is doing. Philip is moved by the Spirit of the Lord to Azotus, former Ashdod of Philistine country. And then he goes on another 55 miles north to Caesarea, verse 40. He preached the Gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All up the Mediterranean coast throughout the region of the Roman Empire, Philip is carrying the Gospel. Look at what the Lord is doing. He's using the foolishness of preaching to take Christ all over the world. And indeed, brethren, what is the means the Spirit would have us use today to declare Christ? It's really simple. We preach Jesus. We declare the same gospel that Philip did Christ as a fulfillment of Scripture. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. Christ was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. He was seen. Repent. And believe in Him. This is the message that's turning the world upside down. And may we carry it with us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the many, many things You show us of how You keep Your promises, how You are willing to seek and save the far off, the ungodly, and bring them home to Yourself. You are kind to give us teachers to instruct us in the Scripture. And Lord, You even give us this outward sign and seal, baptism, to show us Your grace to us and to give us opportunity to profess our loyalty to You. Lord, we thank You that Your power is truly awesome. And we pray that we would stand astounded in view of Your amazing grace. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.